0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar.
1: Episode 5, Jesus of Nazareth. I believe in Jesus Christ. After affirming God the Father and Creator, the creed goes on to declare faith in Jesus Christ. The next line, his only Son, our Lord, declares the divinity of Christ, and we'll pick that line up next episode when we discuss the Trinitarian nature of God. The Creed also goes on to recognise some of the works of Christ and various events in his life, and we'll get to those as well. But first, what does the Creed affirm about Jesus' nature? Well, apart from declaring him to be the Son of God the Father, and God in his own right – Not much, really. But if you've been around church for a while, then you'll know that Christians also affirm that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. This is a claim that isn't explicit in the Apostles' Creed and wasn't fleshed out until the Council of Chalcedon, which was held in 451 AD. We spoke in the first episode about how creeds are often born out of controversy that they serve as boundary markers to protect orthodox belief. The Council of Chalcedon and the resulting statement it produced on the nature of Christ is a great example of this process. So let's take a quick look at what happened. First, some background. The divinity of Christ had already been established at earlier ecumenical councils held in Nicaea in 325 AD and Constantinople in 381 AD. These two councils together produced the Nicene Creed, which you may be familiar with. In the 5th century, in the lead-up to Chalcedon, the main concern turned to how Jesus could be God when he was also a human person. How exactly could these two very different natures, God and human, come together in the one person? This is one of the major theological questions we can ask about Jesus, and it's occupied many thinkers throughout the church's history. And as people in the early church struggled to understand how Jesus could be simultaneously human and divine, a number of positions emerged. Some of these were later ruled as heretical by the consensus of the Council of Chalcedon. And I'm going to talk about three of these ideas here briefly, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism and Eutychianism. And all of them are named after the 4th century theologian who came up with the idea, or who represented it most strongly. And they all help us to clarify how Jesus can be both God and human at the same time. Apollinarius was a bishop from what is now Syria, who sought to emphasize the divinity of Christ by arguing that although Jesus had a human body, the mind, soul and spirit were supplied by the Son of God alone. Think of Jesus as the nature of God in a human shell, according to Apollinarius. Christ's human nature was incomplete in this view. Nestorius was the archbishop of Constantinople, and he wanted to maintain the distinction between the two natures of Christ. But he did so by arguing that Christ was also two persons, the divine Logos and the human Jesus. And Eutychius was an abbot in Constantinople. He directly argued against Nestorius, and proposed instead that the human and divine natures of Christ fuse into a single, new nature. But in arguing that the two natures become one in union, he saw the divine nature as essentially engulfing the human one, so he only gave a token acknowledgement to Jesus' humanity. All of these positions and more were part of the theological landscape in the 4th century. And though they're considered heretical understandings by the majority of the Church today, we need to remember that heresy is judged retrospectively. In reality, many theological positions, rejected by the consensus of the Church throughout history, began their life as sincere attempts to understand the Scriptures and to construct a coherent doctrine. Theology is always worked out in conversation and the various missteps along the way serve an important function. So the Council of Chalcedon was called to adjudicate. It brought together representatives from across the Church in pursuit of a consensus over how to understand the nature of Christ. And it produced what is known as the Chalcedonian Formula, which is a statement on the nature of Christ that refuted various heretical understandings. Now, the Chalcedonian formula is a pretty wordy statement, but it contains some key phrases that counter erroneous understandings. Against Apollinarius' views, for example, it asserts that Jesus is complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, and like us in all respects, apart from sin. Against Eutyches' suggestion that the two natures fuse into one – the formula states that distinction between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union. And it counters Nestorius by arguing that the two natures of Christ come together in one person. So how is Christ, both fully God and fully human but still one person, if all of these positions are incorrect? Well, Chalcedon declares Jesus to be one person, in which the two natures are, quote, united unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Clear as mud, right? Really, the only thing that is clear from the statement is what Jesus is not. When it comes to how the divine and human natures are united in the one person, Jesus Christ, somehow without compromising the integrity of either of those natures, the precise mechanism is likely to remain a mystery to us. Credal statements prevent us from falling into error, even as we acknowledge our understanding is incomplete. So this episode so far has been pretty heavy on historical dates and figures. And history can be pretty dry if it's just a recital of facts. So here's a fun snippet for you. Did you know that St Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa is rumoured to have slapped Arius in the face in rebuke of his blasphemy at the Council of Nicaea. Well, like many rumours, it's absolutely unfounded, I'm afraid. Say, Nick probably didn't even attend the council, and the many versions of the story didn't crop up until a millennium afterwards, and they're all convoluted and contradictory. But there are still a number of Greek icons that celebrate the apocryphal event, which shows that ancient rumour mills were at least as prolific as contemporary ones. Unsubstantiated claims aside, as fun as they can be, this quick journey through the history of the Council of Chalcedon and its background gives us insight into how theology is constructed and it raises questions of providence as well. Our commitment to the authority of scripture rests on the belief that God was present in the processes of the early church that led to the formation of the Bible as we know it today that God was leading those, making decisions over which texts rightfully belonged in the biblical canon and which did not. Last episode, we discussed the place of tradition as a source for theological development and discernment. We take into account the way that thinkers in the past have understood the scriptures and articulated what they viewed as theological truths. Even as we bring a critical eye to these sources, questioning whether they hold up, or whether they require fresh examination and expression in the present. The Chalcedonian formula is still considered today to be the most definitive statement on the nature of Christ. Though it is limited in content, it sets the standard of orthodoxy across almost the entire church. Even so, the Chalcedonian formula leaves many questions about Jesus unanswered. Some of the questions it does not address include, how does Jesus' suffering affect God? Are some of Jesus' actions attributable to one nature and some to the other? Is Christ still fully human and fully divine after the resurrection? How is atonement achieved? The only mention in the formula is the very general for us and for our salvation. This just highlights that theology is always a work in progress. We revisit old questions and ask new ones as we seek greater understanding for our faith. But let's move away from historical details to the realm of speculation, because both have their place in the practice of theology. While we're on the subject of Jesus, I want to mention one of my favourite theological questions. It's probably going to sound a bit left field, but here goes. If there were no sin, would we still have Jesus? Or put another way, would we have incarnation if it weren't for the fall? Now, if we accept that creation is fallen, then this might seem like a hopelessly hypothetical and irrelevant speculation. Jesus came to save us from the reality of sin, and that's that. How could we even begin to guess what might have happened if things were different? But I think asking this question actually helps us think through some important theological ideas, such as the purpose of the Incarnation itself. Was it part of God's plan from the very beginning? Or is it more of a plan B, put into action to clean up the mess made by sin? And we can think even more about this question by asking what God's purposes for creation are. We know that God wants relationship and reconciliation, but what if there were no need to reconcile? Was creation initially perfect and intended to remain that way in a static sense? Or did God have a particular goal in mind for creation from the beginning? Let's hear from Alistair and Ben on this one. First, Alistair.
2: Well, this was one of those questions that medieval theologians loved. They loved it because you can't answer it. You know, you, know, you can't prove you're right, but you can use it to open up possibilities. And that's why why theology is so interesting. It makes you think about possibilities and it deepens your appreciation of things. So one school of thought says this. Um, Humanity fell and that's a big problem and God is gracious and kind and therefore intervened in Christ to redirect the whole process So no fall no incarnation If you take that view say actually fall was quite a good thing because the incarnation is wonderful So you'll find some medieval theologians talking about the the happy sin of Adam because look look at the result of it It's Christ coming. It's wonderful Others said, well, no, actually, um, Christ would come anyway. It's such a wonderful thing that we didn't have to mess up, that in effect, this is something that was going to happen anyway. And my own view is that the first makes more sense, but I can see why some argue for the second. But here's the takeaway point, and the takeaway point is simply, The more we think about the incarnation, the more it gives you a lens through which you can look at ourselves and realize if God had to do this, which is so wonderful and so expensive on his part, then, hey, A, we must matter a lot to him, and B, we really are in a mess, aren't we? So in effect, it's a good way of understanding the reality of sin, but also the love of God for us.
1: And here's Ben's answer.
0: I don't think of the incarnation just as God's rescue plan because things went wrong. The incarnation seems in some ways, like a fulfillment of God's plan for creation. Think about the Genesis story where God makes man and woman in God's own image. And then Jesus comes in or in Jesus, God becomes human. Humans are already God's image. That there is already a fittingness, an aptness, a likeness between gods and between God and human beings. And so when God becomes human in Jesus, in some ways that is a completion, a fulfillment of the creation project. God has purpose-built a creation that is habitable to God. And some Christian theologians have have argued quite forcefully, I guess, for the idea that. The creation is actually brought into being for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the incarnation.
1: The argument that the incarnation would have occurred even without sin understands incarnation to be about far more than just atonement. Yes, the work of Christ is a remedy for sin, but it's so much more than that. It's a part of God's plan from the very beginning to draw the creation into ever closer union with the divine. This doesn't pose a threat to the original goodness of creation, by the way. Think of a newborn. No one says that babies are not perfect as they are, but they're also intended to grow, to realise the potential they were born with. The capacity for growth is not the opposite of perfection. As we close, what do you think of this perspective on the Incarnation? How does it shape the way you understand your relationship to God and God's purpose for you?
0: This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.